I was just thinking of a guy who's like, hey, man, that guy's a real audiophile. Like, you got to stay away from him. <laughs> That's so stupid. Yeah, I don't know. Like, he's always, you know, I don't know. I just, like, looked on his computer the other day. He was looking at these really expensive headphones, man. Like, he's got studio speakers at his house. Like, what are you listening to, man? This like, reminds me of, I had, um, I had a character when I was younger, much, much, much younger. But my character was the person who, um, like, it is like a malaprop person with a malaprop problem. Mm-hmm. I, what's malaprop? When you accidentally use the wrong word, but it sounds very, very close to what it's Gotcha. Yeah, 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 yeah. So they would be like, like, yeah, man, that's such a nautical idea. Yeah. Yeah. I knew a guy. No, that's actually fucked up because like, I knew yeah, a guy. Yeah, hard on. Hard on. Um, I'm gonna ch- I'm gonna I'm gonna take that clip of you saying yeah hard on I'm gonna put that as my text tone for whenever <laughs> I get a text don't. I'm gonna get that it's it's a free country baby I can do it Ugh. it's uh it's it's fine for me to do I, I'm a little this, is this how the comments works or whatever now that I've said it it's just everyone owns it is that mm-hmm. it what what is I, that never, called again I don't Collective know whenever comments? people talk about the comments I'm like what are you is that a college thing like what are you talking is that like the quad yeah, I don't know what that is comments it sounds like I, a like a cafeteria I have no interest in whatever your comments are I like rare things like diamonds mm. uh yeah I mean actually I like pretty diamonds. much exclusive. do you have you ever had when one? are you buying no. me diamonds I actually so this is crazy you mentioned this I bought you a super rare diamond um, from this kid I know, uh, <laughs> and it turns out, so, all right, so this is kind of like a cheap thing for me to say. So I bought the diamond and then unfortunately like this, like weird, like, uh, UN task force or whatever, maybe give it back. Mm. Uh, and apparently I have to go to prison or whatever, but like, I'm sure oh, to work that's out. That's so romantic. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's cool. It's, it's called like a mud diamond or something. I wasn't really oh, paying attention to what you said. Uh, but, but yeah, it was, it was only like $75. How one even go about buying a blood diamond? It's, I, I don't know. It sounds more magical than I thought it would be. <laughs> uh, I think you have to go to, doesn't like. It sounds like it, it's a thing where it's like, you know, a guy who knows a guy who knows a guy who knows a guy. And then suddenly you're like, you know, on a plane to Africa. I'll, I'll be honest with you. Probably, uh, our producer and I have family members involved in this business. <laughs> Boy, oh boy, oh boy. Guess what? I'm starting this one. Hello. Provichinik. I was not expecting that. Um, hello, Slava everyone. Slava Franzak! Slava Franzak! <laughs> what is Slava? What are you saying? Oh, well, okay. That's a little spoiler alert. Well, Slava... Well, let's say Slava Ukraina is like a... Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Don't say not, that. Yeah. Well, I didn't say Slava Ukraina. I said Slava Franzak. No one's ever... I, it's, it's actually kind well, of an art thing. That's not even thing. how you say my name. Frank Zach. No. Um, it's Franzak, I know, but it's, I was doing Frenchek. it in an accent. Franchek. No, Franchek. Fren- if you French- want to do the accent. Frenchman. Oh, my God. Hello, Liz welcome. Frenchman. My name is Liz. My name is Slava Brace. <laughs> <laughs> We're reappropriating it. They killed us, dude. We can say it. 
We are, of course, joined by our producer, Young Chomsky. And Slava Chomsky. This is Truanon. Hello. Slava Truanon! Hello. Sorry, I'll stop. I swear to God, I'll stop. I'm really sweaty right now, baby. I fucked up. Why are you so sweaty? I, I turned the It was really cold in here earlier, and I turned the heat on, and now I'm hot. As hell, because I forgot I have to close the doors to my bedroom when I record here. So oh now I'm God. really warm. It's like a whole hot box. You got a sauna going. I, yeah, I'm here. Okay. Hold on. I'm doing No, keep okay. your shirt on, please. Baby, just, okay. <laughs> All right. So today we've got, uh, I think, a fun episode. We're, we're talking about a, a, a big country mm-hmm. that little people know about, meaning few people know about. I want to kind of give us a uh, a pat on the back here because uh, we've mm. already recorded the interview. Mm. Spoiler alert: uh, mm. we did it. Nothing happened during it that was prevented from finishing. Uh, and neither Liz nor I said, and of course not our guests said the Ukraine once. <laughs> we say we just what straight up that? said Ukraine the whole Why time. Why do people say that? What is that whole thing? Uh, I don't. It sounds right. I think like it's I not honestly right, don't. Though. I think when it was like maybe part of like the Russian empire, it was called the Ukraine or something. Mm. But it's a very it's, like millennia, millennium thing. Like it reminds Ukraine? me of like saying people saying the Ukraine, like it's very like 1999 to 2001. Oh, it's like how people used to call it the internet, but now people are just like, I am on internet today or whatever. <laughs> like people don't say the internet anymore. Um, no, so we're talking actually- about, yeah, we're talking about Ukraine. Nazis, of course, Brace's favorite topic. Mm-hmm. I, I will say, little thing here, this is a Spider Network episode. We get to talk a little bit about my favorite topic, the Atlantic Council. Mm-hmm. And uh, we did not get to talk about Hunter Biden, but... Um, His name was mentioned, it came up. We need a little, like, here, because... Whoa, 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 whoa! That is a editorial... Di- hold on. Chomsky, hold off with that chick chick here. You've got to. Are we chick chicking Hunter Biden? No, he's our. Isn't he our. Yeah, why not? Of course. Hey, did you th- wait, you just did a meth- the gesture like you thought he was dead. Do you think someone killed Hunter Biden? No, 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 no. I don't understand. What is with the memification of Hunter Biden? He fucking sucks, man. Are you are out of your fucking mind. You ha- are you serious? All right, guy is a poon hound, he lies a lot. He yeah. had sex with his brother's wife. He's a scam artist, and he's no, a No, I mean, loser. I get why you boys did that, but I, as someone who has been following what was going on in the Ukraine with the Obamas the and the Ukraine. Bidens for a long time, I just did that on purpose for you, baby. Uh, yeah, right. I, I t- but, okay, uh, I'm sorry. I don't find lot- it very funny. I don't find he's the memification a- of Joe Biden or Hunter Biden very funny. I that. think Hunter Biden's cool because I think losers are cool. And also because I you love You think he's drugs. cool because you would also like to be propped up by NATO. I am propped up by NATO, dude. Who do you Have you looked at the subscriptions of our podcast? 98% of them come from Israel and the other 2% come from an army base in Germany. All right, let's get to it. Well, we're back. Nope, that's awful. Not going to do that. We're not back from anywhere. We didn't, we haven't. Keep it going. Keep it going. This is good. Okay. You know, Liz, I got to say, a little frustrated you didn't jump in there. I just did it. 
Well, I know, but didn't jump in before. I mean, listen, if the stuff we're talking about oh, today. Oh, so too little, too late. Always. Uh, uh, all right. Well, it's just. If I, I jump in uh, too quickly, then I'm interrupting. If I jump in too late, I'm not ticking your cue. Ever heard of something called a sweet spot? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. He likes it just right. Exactly. Well, we have with us today uh, a, 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 I don't know. I don't, I, again, I, I was, didn't know what to call him before this, but let's say an independent private investigator, Moss <laughs> Robison, who has a blog. You know, I'm not a big blog spot guy. You know, I'm not that you have a blog spot. I don't mean to do you like that. Uh, but but he's got this Bandera Lobby blog, which are two words that if you connect them together, make a super word that attracts my attention. It is a fantastic uh, blog about the uh, re- his research into the uh, the activities of the organization of Ukrainian nationalists in America and worldwide. Fantastic blog, and we have him here today to discuss just what the fuck the Bandera Lobby is. And what are they lobbying for and what the history is behind it? Moss, how you doing? Thank you. I'm happy to be here. Uh, first of all, it's weird that you're into this. And so <laughs> I want to <laughs> I wanted to ask you, because when I started reading your blog, I was like, what? This is because this is this is a, this is a, uh, a topic that very much attracts my attention. I, I, I started reading about Stepan Bandera a while ago, and it's just such a strange fucking figure with such a weird cult like legacy. Uh, and, and I was delighted to find your blog, but I'm like, I'm wondering like, how did you sort of get interested in this topic? Well, I've been following, falling down this kind of rabbit hole for a while. Um, I had something of a turning point about a year, year and a half ago, um, when I visited this Ukrainian cemetery in New Jersey and, um, at the time, if you'd asked me what this was all about, it was kind of just my own interest in this sort of little-known chapter um, of the Cold War history. And um, I was looking for the grave of this guy, Mykola Labed, who was mm. um, used to be a big shot in this thing, the Organization of Ukrainian Nationalists. Mm. And um, he, which, and the, the most radical faction of the OUN, led by this guy, Stepan Bandera. Um, and so that's the OUNB faction, B for Bandera. And... Um, the thing is, Labed was for a while the de facto leader of the OUNB um, in like 1941-42, and he was arguably a bigger war criminal than Bandera. But he hard to and, do. That's a, that's a tall order. Well, Bandera spent a lot of the war in a um, concentration camp, albeit as a privileged political prisoner. We can talk about that later, but. But basically, Bande- uh, Labed ends up leading this thing called the Foreign Representation of the Ukrainian Supreme Liberation Council, and which was created by the OUNB. But long story short is that Labed and this group have a falling out with Bandera and split with him in 1948, which is when the CIA is getting into the swing of things. And so the CIA picks a side and they pick um, Labed. Oh, and, what a shocker. Yeah, and so <laughs> what I did not realize, I knew when I was going there that um, Labed is buried in this special section of this uh, cemetery, which has got, which is a pretty prominent um, Ukrainian cemetery, um, among others. I mean, there's a lot of people buried there, but right in the front, um, I found out the day I get there, uh, is Dmitro Donsov is buried there, who... He's the guy who translated Mein Kampf into Ukrainian, and he wasn't mm-hmm. himself a member of the OUN, but he was kind of like the um, unofficial, like leading ideologue of the OUN, and especially um, the OUNB. 
And so, but so I knew Lebed was buried in the special section of the cemetery, but I did not realize is that、um, a lot of the people buried with him were like him, these Nazi turned CIA collaborators. And so, in, at the time, I also kind of naively,、um, emphasis on the word naively, assumed that the OUNB ceased to exist after、um, the Soviet Union collapsed, or at least just became irrelevant. But,、um, and I was living up in New Paltz, New York,、mm-hmm. um, just kind、there. of near yeah, the Catskills and stuff. And、um, what I did not realize, and I came to realize, and looking more into some of these people who were buried in this. Section of this、uh, cemetery is that on the other side of the mountains outside my window in New Paltz was the summer camp, which is where you can find the world's oldest monument dedicated to Bandera. And、um, in finding about the summer camp is kind of what led, led me to realize that the, the OUNB、um, still exists, which was kind of a freaky, surreal. Yeah, it's like you suddenly realize, like,、uh, this one little thing that I was kind of interested in is this, like,、uh, radiating, much bigger, crazier story than you even anticipated. Yeah, and I knew it was relevant to stuff that's going on today, but I didn't realize、um, how much, I guess, that, that's like an understatement. Well, I have like two immediate questions just from you saying that is that maybe will serve as like a good jumping off point, which is one, why the hell are all these Ukrainian Nazis buried in the United States? <laughs> that's, that's something that just sticks out, right? Like, first、yes. of all. <laughs> And two,、um, who is Stefan Bandera? For, because I don't, his name is not, I, I'm sure that some of our listeners maybe have heard his name or.、Um, Uh, my assumption is that the majority haven't, only because, like you say, like Ukrainian history、um, in terms of the Cold War and even in World War II is like a bit niche, I think it's as, as you described it. It's like Ukraine in general is sort of this like kind of oddly placed country in terms of、um, uh, geopolitical history. And, and so. It, 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 it kind of occupies like a weird place in our like narratives about the Cold War and, and, and even World War II. So, to briefly answer the first part,、um, <laughs> there's, I mean, the Ukrainian American community is an elsewhere,、um, especially pre World War II, is far from any kind of monolith. But then after World War II, the,、um, the overwhelming majority. Of Ukrainian emigres coming to the United States and Canada and Australia and elsewhere、um, were from Western Ukraine, which、um, was part of Poland and before that, Austria and then before that, Poland again.、And、You'll get it back one day, Liz. I swear to you, I will do this for you. <laughs> We might、It's, be okay with maybe we're good on that one. <laughs> <laughs> well, but that part of Western Ukraine was、um, where. The nationalists and the OUN yeah. comes yeah. from. <laughs> oh, yeah, so, true. Also, 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 by the way, Banderistan, as some, as some of the internet calls it, yeah. <laughs> and then so, yeah, and so Bandera's from there too. And、um, he basically, I guess, long story short, in, he's a, the OUN is founded in 1929, and he's like a founding member and quickly rises through the ranks of the OUN. And his notoriety, and same as Michael Labed. Stems from this 1934 assassination of the interior minister of Poland.、Mm-hmm. And something about that is that so Bandera is the one who gives out the order, perhaps at,、um, on behalf of the 
international leadership of the OUN, by which at that point was based in um, in Western Europe, in like Vienna and Berlin and Rome, and um, but and then Michael Labed is the one who more manages the supervises the thing and manages the assassin who himself gets away, and he ends up making his way to South America and. Um, mm. In 1941, the U.S. government <laughs> is convinced that he's on a mission from by the Germans and even the Gestapo, I think, um, to assassinate FDR. Mm. And so obviously that doesn't happen, but um, the Secret Service um, is suspecting of this Ukrainian bishop in the United States, Ivan Buchko, who, if not already, soon becomes like the Vatican's chief advisor on Ukrainian affairs. Wonderful. And then after Very the good. war, he helps introduce the CIA to Michael Labed, sure, sure, who's sure. the guy who oversees this, and alleged... who like who like six years before they thought was going to shoot the American president. They're like, or just, he was the guy who was managing guy. the guy who they yeah, thought. Right, was right, right, right. Yeah, 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 yeah. But so by the time that 1941, the U.S. government learns about this, Bandera and Labed had been sentenced to death, and then that was commuted to life imprisonment. Um, when they got their sentence, they made a, um, a fascist salute and said, you know, Slava Ukraini, glory to Ukraine. And um, they then get out of prison, depending on who you ask, escape or are released um, just after the invasion of Poland. And, um, and so in the first weeks of World War II, they're free. And then Bandera makes his way to Rome, where the new leader of the OUN is, and then challenges him and... There's really that's, this general... That's Andrei Melnik, right? Yeah, and so then you have, as a result of this, mainly generational struggle. You have the OUNM for Melnik and the OUNB for Bandera. And um, the OUNB is the one that's um, basically ends up dominating in Western Ukraine. And um, so Bandera basically becomes the spokesperson for this more radical, um, more extreme faction of the OUN led by these young people so just real quick when we talk about like what you know we, we say like ukrainian nationalism you know what bandera is fighting for can you kind of explain like what i mean you know like what his beliefs were like what is like ukrainian nationalism like in this context well something that they would say um ukrainian nationalists would say then and perhaps now is that um, they weren't fascist because mm. these were uniquely Ukrainian ideas, but mm. that's something all these fascist movements, you know. Right, all, right, right. That, that's, that's one thing about the OUNB that, that's funny is because, you know, they, they call Bandera the, I don't know how to pronounce it, but it's V-O-Z-H-D, mm -hmm. which is basically the same thing as like the Fuhrer. And, and, and they follow what's essentially the Fuhrer principle, like the Fuhrer, Fuhrer principle, like this, this leader principle. And like it's it's essentially like identical <laughs> to to uh, to to you know the more well known fascist movements. Yeah, and Melnik and others. Um, well, Melnik in I think nineteen nineteen thirty eight writes to um, von Ribbentrop and says, you know, our for us Ukrainian nationalism is akin to um, fascism in Italy and um, national socialism in Germany, and so. Uh, Ribbentrop, often, by the way, for for listeners who aren't familiar with this, uh, Joaquin, Joaquin von Ribbentrop, right, is the mm -hmm. uh, foreign minister of Nazi Germany. And so, for the, you know, people refer to Bandera and so as Ukrainian Nazis, and I guess 
it's more or less correct, but um, you know, for them, ca- like capital N Ukrainian nationalism, I think is more or less equivalent to you know how when you don't call Italian fascists um, or capital F fascists Italian Nazis, but I mean it's like they're right, right, yeah. equivalent. Or and it's so, like the same case in like Romania too, which is like a kind of a different fascist flavor, but still. Mm-hmm. Uh, explicitly fascist. Well, very sim- they're actually very similar to the Ukrainians in that they they per- uh, they 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 found farm tools to be useful implements in taking care of my people. Mm. Yeah, yeah. And there's a whole we could probably spend a lot of time getting into some of the more nuanced and complicated stuff about the specifics of their the OUN and the OUNB's um, collaboration with the Nazis. It was a bit complicated, but I mean, at the end of the day. Um, they started the war as collaborators and they ended the war as collaborators. Um, yeah, they were kind of like classic frenemies, right? Mm-hmm. Like, they had, yeah. They, like, they kind of had like a useful, they were like, the Ukrainians were useful to the Nazis until they weren't, and then they were like useful again, kind of, maybe? Yeah, I think the, they'll say that this was all a strategic thing, but oh, there was... Yeah, yeah that's very what they always strategic. Say. It wasn't, yeah, yeah, yeah. It wasn't very strategic to, like, put your faith in Hitler to uh, yeah. free Ukraine, because he had no interest in doing so. Well, that's, um, that's, the, that's the thing a lot of these, like, European fascist movements thought would happen. I mean, you saw the same thing with the Iron Guard in Romania and the Aerocross yeah. Party in, in Hungary, uh, in, that, in that they thought that, like, when Hitler came and took over the country, he would naturally put his brother fascist in, party, er, in power, rather. Um, what actually ended up happening in most of these countries, Hungary, Romania, is that it actually put, like, more authoritarian nationalists in power, like, usually old-school military men. I mean, certainly Miklos Horthy uh, in, in, in Hungary fits the bill there. And then only in, like, desperation, uh, specifically, again, with Hungary, would he, like, turn to the actual fascists there because they would be loyal no matter what because, you know, it's a very cuck thing to be, especially with the arrow cross. I mean, my God, what babies. Um, but but <laughs> the thing is, like, when Hitler invaded Ukraine, Hitler wasn't, like, invading Ukraine to free Ukraine. I mean, there was some propaganda to that effect. He was invading Ukraine for Lebensraum, for living space. Like, that was supposed to be, like, the western frontier, or excuse me, well, rather, literally, the eastern frontier for the Nazis, where the SS men would live as, like, the knights of yore and have these farms, and Ukrainians would serve as, like, cattle and serfs. And so, like, there was Great never farmland. any... Oh, by the way, yeah, in Ukraine. Yeah, I mean, Beautiful. You, should, you should see these sunflowers. There's the reason why so many people want it. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, and so the, the Ukrainian nationalists, you know, in 41, they, they, they declare a state uh, in Ukraine, and that does not go over very well with the Nazis. Um, and, and yeah, I mean, that's, that's, again, like you were right, it's, it's probably a little too much history to get into here. But the important thing is that they started the end of the war. Uh, with with the Nazis, and that they committed a lot of, let's say, similar actions in Ukraine as the Nazis themselves did there. And the Nazis were not known for being kind to our brothers and sisters in Ukraine. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I guess, I guess the short version of it is that a lot of the things that Ukrainian nationalists will say about what happened in World War II is just um, not true. And... Um, <laughs> You know, one of the things that's important is that they infiltrated, the OUMB in particular, infiltrated some of these auxiliary police units that um, served at, like, the front lines of what people will call the Holocaust by bullets. And um, and then from there, defected after it was clear the Germans were going to lose, they create the Ukrainian insurgent army, which is um, 
more than anything, seemed to prioritize ethnic cleansing as many mm. uh, Polish people as possible in um, the like contested territories. And, yeah, there's uh, a, there's like I, I've read statistics that vary, but but one that's generally I've read a lot is probably around a hundred thousand Polish people were massacred, uh, and not just with bullets because you know these guys did not have a lot of bullets, but like I was saying earlier, with with farm implements and with metal pikes and stuff like that, and not as many Jews because the Nazis were a little more, well, that was kind of their territory, but but certainly quite a few Jews. Yeah, I think it's a problem too for. Ukrainian-Polish relations today, because I'm pretty sure Poland <laughs> recognizes that as a genocide. And um, according to Ukraine, the people who perpetrated this ethnic cleansing or genocide, whatever you want to call it, are official heroes. Um, that That's Black Sea mindset, baby. No genocides. <laughs> no country around the Black Sea can ever commit a genocide. But I think also something um, that I find really interesting about the origins of the OUN is one of the first things they do, or from the beginning, is to um, set their eyes on creating these front organizations in the U.S. and Canada. And so, one way or another, the OUN has been active um, in North America for almost, like, for 90 years at this point, um, which is just kind of crazy. And yeah. so, as in the 1930s, they're drifting more and more towards um, Nazi Germany. There's... Uh, to a lesser extent, the same is true of their allies, sympathizers in um, in the U.S. and Canada, and um, so it's it's been a long it's for decades they've been building up this I guess what you could call a lobby. You mentioned in uh, before we get like straight to the lobby part. You did mention something that intrigued me in an email that we 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 exchanged earlier. You said something about like a murder house in Manhattan. That I had not heard about, and I would, I would very, I'm very curious about this. So the main um, affiliate of the OUN, um, originally it still exists, but it's it might as well not anymore. Um, and it came to be aligned with the OUNM, but the what was called the Organization for the Rebirth of Ukraine was created in 1930, and it was headquartered in the Ukrainian National Home. Um, in Manhattan, which is not, which is at a previous location of where it is today. Um, and so there was this, um, the FBI busted this, was referred to as like a kidnap syndicate that was then traced back to the basement of the Ukrainian National Home. And that was in, I want to say 1938. Mm -hmm. And so right around the time that this was busted, there was what was the like largest I think to date, Ukrainian nationalist rally um, in New York City. And some of these leaders of the OUN came over um, who would then be aligned with the OUNM in the war. And some of them were even murdered by the OUNB, which is actually more, has perhaps even more to do with the Nazi crackdown on the OUNB than their wanting to create mm -hmm. a state, but them trying to knock off their factional rivals who had a bit of a better relationship with the Nazis at that point. But so the um, the leader of the um, this front group, um, you know, he when he's making a speech, he is said to have made a fascist salute, and it was then later explained that he allegedly didn't do that. He just made what looked like a fascist salute, and that people in the audience, thinking that's what he had done, just made the same gesture. So he was like trying response. to swat a fly in front of him. 
yeah. just like at a very like a diagonal angle trying to swat a fly. And, and then all- everyone else was like, there must be a lot of flies in here. We, we should do the same thing. Yeah, no, I think that's probably a good way of explaining <laughs> it. Or it's a better way of explaining it than, than uh, they did to the <laughs> FBI. And so the FBI and the House and American Activities Committee was finally just kind of on the verge of taking an interest in this. But at the time, this group wasn't on the FBI's radar. And so when they busted this um, kidnap syndicate and this guy who had been cremated in the basement, um, all the victims or people who had been kidnapped all um, had Jewish uh, surnames. Hmm. And um, they, the front, this front group was headquartered in that building. And um, the people who cremated this guy in the basement, you know, themselves admitted that it stunk up the entire building. And um, the FBI noted, like, after the fact that the organization relocated their headquarters afterwards. And um, one of the people who was sent to the electric chair for it, his dad, who managed this bar in the basement, that he um, had helped, that he had a relationship with the guy who was known to be the fixer of this front group, which the same lawyer ends up helping pave the way for veterans of the Ukrainian Waffen SS after the war to safely live in the United States. And Mm. so there's like all these like kind of things that do suggest that there may have been a connection or not, but was not really looked into. Um, And then the following year, um, just as the war is starting, the House and American American Activities Committee takes an interest um, in this front group and is referring to it as a front group that clearly has this tie up with Nazi Germany and, and yet, after that, it kind of all goes away, and um, th- there wasn't really much of a follow. I mean, the FBI looked into it, but didn't like actually pursue it or anything like that. Yeah, it's weird because they have the. They will say these Ukrainian nationalists would, who are familiar with the stuff would say they were exonerated by the FBI, and I got the documents, and it's not. They weren't exonerated, but they weren't. Um, they just like weren't they, busted. Yeah. So <laughs> after the war, this stuff kind of made a comeback and then the OUNB created its own front group and um these two factions more or less kind of carved out a sort of duopoly in the Ukrainian American community and um to the point where there was this the Ukrainian national home now on 2nd Avenue um was at least through like the 80s or so affiliated still with the OUNM and then the OUNB had its had its headquarters at the other end of the block, and um, now they've maybe it almost looks like they've switched today. Um, so, like they are just on, di- they're just switched sides of the block with each other. Something like that, but I mean, the OUNM kind of doesn't really exist in. Um, there isn't really evidence that they're still active in North yeah, America, yeah. whereas the OUNB, I guess, in the long term, won out. Let's let's talk about that actually, because because that's mostly what your blog deals with is the fact that like the OUNB still exists and like certainly existed in the post war. You mentioned the World Anti Communist League, uh, which for listeners of our Spider Network series, which by the way this is a part of, um, would be very familiar with that group as they were they were a very important part of that. The uh, you know 
to sort of simplify this history for people, you know, like like we were saying, the, a lot of a lot of Ukrainian nationalists cooperated with the Nazis during World War II. A lot actually, you know, Moss, Moss made a reference to the Waffen, Ukrainian Waffen-SS. Is it Nalink, Nagalak? I don't know how to fucking pronounce these it's words. Noctigal? Noctigal Battalion. Yeah. Yeah, who, who had a particularly um, brutal role in, uh, in, in suppressing the Warsaw Uprising, if I'm not mistaken. No, I think that's, I think you're thinking of the Troniki, but the Noctagal was, did become its own, it was like unofficially commanded by this guy, Shakevich, who leads the Ukrainian insurgent army, and um, in between, the Noctagal battalion became this German auxiliary police battalion, which... Um, the Heavies. Which in all likelihood did have a role in the shooting of Jews and um, quote-unquote partisans in Belarus and... Um, and then they, veterans of that, became instrumental, apparently, in the, um, the OUNB's um, security service, or SB, which was kind of like their equivalent of the, S- of the Nazi SD, mm-hmm. um, which was the SS intelligence agency. And so, yeah, they, they weren't good news either. But, yeah. Yeah. So, so after World War II, you know, I'm sure listeners will be familiar with this. Obviously... You know, we all is forgiven with the Nazis. You know, like, you, you, we got to hang a few of you guys, but, you know, anybody under the rank of fucking general is actually half the guys who are the rank of general okay with us, too. In fact, some of you guys can even go on to command NATO. But uh, basically, everyone's everything's forgiven for almost everybody, except people accused of the most egregious crimes, in which case they get like a 10-year prison sentence. Um, and, and a lot of Ukrainians leave. I know the British, I believe it was the British, hand over a lot of uh, Ukrainians living in Western Europe back to the Soviet Union. But a lot of these guys split. Stepan Bandera finds himself in, in Austria, I believe. And, and America starts like pretty quickly combing through these emigre organizations for people that might be of use in their fight against, uh, against Red Russia. Uh, and, and the OUNB, I believe, is no different. I mean, I, I, I know you said that, uh, that, that, that Bandera himself was not the sort of chosen person by the CIA, but, but I know a lot of these people were like really involved in that kind of stuff because Ukraine certainly, it's, I mean, it's a big country, you know, tens of millions of people. They, they, they sent people back. Yeah. And the, um, before the CIA is created, you know, there's this whole array of U.S. intelligence agencies and, um. And at that point, the OUNB is still kind of all together. So the, there was a relationship. I mean, the, I guess it would have been U.S. military intelligence helped shield Bandera from being deported or repatriated or whatever you want to call it back to the Soviet Union. You know, and people like him, the Soviet Union wasn't all too happy with. Uh, so he would have been in a little bit of trouble had he gone back. But um, yeah, so I mean, and it's like by the time the CIA comes around, they're kind of set on this uh, other group led by this guy, Mykola Labed. But um, the CIA does, you know, they were all on the same side, um, Labed and Bandera and others, in World War II. So they all had a vested interest in whitewashing that shared history. And so it's kind of this weird doublespeak where the CIA doesn't want to support Bandera because he's a fascist, but yet they're working with his former like second ranked deputy. <laughs> and I guess they weren't all, you know, it, it's weird because Bandera is anti-American allegedly. And then Michael Labed and others are presumably pro-American. Um, but then it's the OUNB that, you know, 
by the time the Cold War is over that has hijacked the Ukraine, the organized Ukrainian diaspora. And so they kind of trumped the CIA-backed faction over the mm-hmm. course of the Cold War by accusing them of being crypto-communist CIA yeah. stooges. And, yeah. That's actually, that's a big, uh, in the World Anti-Communist League, which, which I, I know we haven't done a full episode just on them, but, but it is basically a collection of everybody who ever killed a civilian during World War II that was in a part of an organized right-wing group basically started like a, uh, it's the fascist international, essentially, post-war fascist international. Um, and, uh, and it, 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 there, was, there was the big sort of insult in it was calling people either Jewish or a communist, um, or a crypto Jew, or a crypto communist, and, and, and I'm shocked to find that the OUN were 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 not immune from this. Um, yeah, they, I think that's kind of the short answer for how the uh, the OUNB and such ends up getting all this influence in DC is basically via the World Anti Communist League's star rising, via people like John Singlaub and um, and others. And of course, that's when John Singlaub led the or founded the last U.S. chapter of the World Anti-Communist League, and someone else on the board with him was John McCain and John yeah. McCain's dad, who would have met Bandera's deputy Yaroslav mm-hmm. um, Stetsko um, at a 1974 World Anti-Communist League conference, and. Um, yeah, I mean, like you said, I well, think John McCain has his hands all over contemporary Ukrainian history. So, yeah, and yeah. that he that, was all up in there in let's just say 2013, 2014. And those photos of him with the the neo-Nazi guy, um, yeah, Olatyani Boat, who's the leader of the Svoboda Party. Mm-hmm. They, um, I mean, that was originally the Social National Party of Ukraine, um, which used the Wolf's Angel swastika and. They, in part, based their ideology off of this guy, Stetsko. And so I've always kind of imagined that when John McCain would meet with these people, that, you know, he'd say, you know, either I knew or my dad knew, you know, your hero, Yaroslav Stetsko. Um, That's crazy. But it's all, yeah, it, it is just crazy. It's the spider network for you, baby. <laughs> Lots of fathers and sons. Um, like you mentioned that they have some influence in DC. So, so what we're looking at here is basically this motley collection of, of killers, of nationalists, of, uh, you know, Jew baiters and pole, pole murderers. A lot of them have to flee Europe en masse. Obviously a lot of them stay in Europe too. You know, I know France has like a large Eastern European sort of immigrant population from all throughout the 20th and 19th century. Um, a lot of them come to America and sort of, you know, obviously there's already an apparatus set up for him here, like for them, you know, like we've been talking about, you know, OUN, both B and M have, have organizations here that, you know, they can plug into, but, but, but they get really busy. I mean, it's, it's, it, what, it, what exactly is their agenda and like what, what means do they use to further that? Um, well, during, throughout the Cold War, um, I mean, they're pretty much explicitly, in favor of World War Three, um, ah, okay, yeah, because mm. that's the only apparently logical way to deal with your problems, um, <laughs> and you know, kind of almost like I think these Ukrainian nationalists who put their faith in Hitler to liberate Ukraine when it should be obvious that was not what was going to happen. Um, they then put their faith in the United States government to do yeah. that. Where for part A, why that's not very strategic is the U.S. government wasn't actually, you know, trying to uh, 
have a World War III, wasn't trying to break up the Soviet Union for most of it. Um, George Kennan said that uh, Ukraine is to the Soviet Union what Pennsylvania is to the United States. And, um, but B, if there was any kind of conflict, it was just going to be, you know, if there was like a World War III, it was going to be a nuclear war. And, Mm. you know, Ukraine would have been totally um, obliterated. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that would have been like a first right target, you know, right? I mean, that's, that's, it's the breadbasket of Russia. It's, it's like, or it, it, that that's that's the funniest thing about it is like there was no I mean there was there was not a real chance of you know they they thought the Soviet Union would invade maybe Western Europe but but there wasn't really like a chance of a full on ground invasion of the Soviet Union by America there was just a sort of like strangulation and and closing in um, mm-hmm. you know obviously there were plans drawn up and stuff like that but 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 certainly like and, and there were there were anti communist like sort of foreign legion battalions trained in Europe as well. And in America, or at least they they tried to assemble them, um, but yeah, it's it's the same sort of like really opportunistic and short sighted thinking by these guys, which you know I'm glad of because fuck these guys. But uh, I mean, I'm glad they didn't have any good ideas. It, it, it's 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 just funny. It's like it's just like so many of these other fascist movements that like nineteen you know May 1945 rolls around and bam, like overnight they switch. Like, oh yeah, we like America. We're moving to America. You guys, you know, whoever invades Russia next, we're with you. Yeah. And but I guess the part two to answer your question earlier, how they do that, I think is largely, they're just great at infiltrating. And I think it's, they're basically, their almost defining characteristic is that they're control freaks. And so mm-hmm. they take over Ukrainian Congress Committee of America, um, making themselves basically the spokespeople for, Ukrainian Americans, and the key person in that is this guy Lev Dobryansky, who, I mean, he was a part of the American Security Council. He um, invented this thing, Captive Nations Week, which basically becomes this mm-hmm. yearly thing that brings all these people, crypto fascists, together. Um, and he's also um, a major person in the formation of the World Anti Communist League, of course, are the OUN and um, and um, so in 1980, he was the longtime president of the Ukrainian Congress Committee of America, and he uh, he also joined in on the whole, I guess you could say, smear campaign against the CIA faction as crypto-communists. Um, and um, he greenlit this, what has been called within the Ukrainian-American community, a coup of the Ukrainian Congress Committee of America um, just before the 1980 U.S. election. And then ever since then, the... The Banderites have basically dominated the Ukrainian Congress Committee of America, and the UCCA people then got a number of appointments to the Reagan administration. And so, I mean, kind of since then, they've had this very dominating role in the Ukrainian-American community. And I don't know exactly when that would have happened with Canada, too, but you eventually see the same thing, where they come to dominate the representative body of Ukrainian-Canadians ukrainian canadian congress and at this point today they control the ukrainian world congress i mean the international leader of the ounb um a guy from australia is the first vice president of the ukrainian world congress and the current i believe he called he called you an fsb agent if i'm not mistaken yeah he and numerous other people do too i mean it's kind of their 
their thing. <laughs> they, th- they 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 think you're doing this for Russian intelligence, which is yeah, that's that's nice of them to yeah, say. Yeah, I take it as um, I think it's flattering because um, I'm not Ukrainian. I'm not like an expert on this stuff, and yet it's all flown under the radar for so long that you know, for someone like me to kind of come around and I'm not the first and not the last to, um, I guess you could say, expose some of this stuff, but. Um, the fact that I've been able to get as far as I have, they think wouldn't be possible without me having like an FSB case officer or someone. <laughs> I doubt they actually think that it's just literally anyone who's critical of Ukraine and its relationship with the United States is called a Russian asset. Or a I Russian think spy. that too, but then they literally <laughs> like it gets like the other day, the guy who I've had on good authority is the U S leader of the OUNB and also the longtime executive director of the Center for U.S.-Ukraine Relations. He sent an he sent an email out to I don't know who knows number of people, and I've met him. And he refers to me as um, he put my name in like scare scare quotes, like I'm a <laughs> like it's a pseudonym. <laughs> and I mean, it just to me just speaks to how crazy some of these people actually are that. Mm. They they literally see good the... attention to detail though you know <laughs> they're on top of everything yeah and it's like now their rhetoric has almost become totally normal mainstream you know to it is I mean I think it absolutely one hundred percent is there isn't like a uh, let's just say like left wing or like nominally left wing line on Ukraine like there's not really even any discourse about Ukraine everyone's just sort of like oh what the news says you know they got it. You know, uh, post-Soviet and, you know, Black Sea countries, a little complicated, stay out of it. You know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. there just really isn't, um, I, I, I don't know. I think they've been very successful in dominating the discourse. Yeah, I think the left is kind of stuck on uh, Victoria Newland and mm. Christia Freeland. And for the most part, doesn't really get past that. You know, yeah, and yeah, yeah. I feel like these historic, there's like such a historical force um, that I think really far outweighs anything that Victoria Newland, whoever um, people want to put the blame on, any one single person in the US or Canadian government. Um, you know, because the stuff has just been, they've been pushing this stuff for so long that um, it's just a force in and of itself. Well, I mean, if you look at, like, the popularity of, like, the... I, I've never known how to pronounce it, really, because I've tried to avoid this in conversation with people. But the Holodomor mm-hmm. uh, sort of discourse around that. I mean, that was not... When I was sort of first getting involved in uh, extremist politics uh, as a participant, that was not a word that, I, you know, you heard flung around a lot. I mean, you heard people talk about the famines in the 30s in Ukraine and stuff like that, you know, and... and, and, and Farm collectivization, uh, but but not necessarily referred to as such. And and for those who aren't familiar with that term, that is essentially the word that Ukrainians and actually pretty much everybody now uh, uses to to refer to the famines in Ukraine in the 30s uh, as a result of many different factors, which are a little too much to get into here. And boy, do I not want to get into that. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but but it has become you know when you and I talk we, we talked about this a little bit it has become really like a copy of, of of the way that like a lot of groups have sort of dealt with the Holocaust 
as in this sort of like memification and as this like really like this 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 central part of Ukrainian identity uh, is is this famine. Yeah, and it's yeah. I mean, it's I don't even know where to begin, but I mean, I think when you look at it's literally like when I say banderites, I don't mean just in the way that Soviet or the Russian government might mean it when they just kind of use it to refer to generally speaking Ukrainian nationalists, but like actually members of the OUNB or its affiliated organizations um, have really been at the forefront of a lot of the Holodomor discourse. And, um, and I think it is this very just cynical thing for them um, where, like for one example, this summer camp near me, when I was tweeting about it simply, and I never, you know, I got, I, like, I got blocked by the U.S. Holodomor committee or whatever on Twitter without ever having mentioned the, um, the famine. And, you know, I look it up, it's run by this guy, it's run by people from the Ukrainian Congress Committee of America, in particular this guy who wrote a, something up when uh, Yaroslav Stetsko, the OUNB leader, who was himself a Nazi collaborator and vicious anti-Semite and war criminal, died he wrote obituary and um but for them it's like so i criticize this ukrainian summer camp and i'm getting messages from ukrainian american teenagers like oh you're a you're a holodomor denier when like i've never (laughs) mentioned it and it's basically like you know if you're speaking about um israel and palestine people will conflate um anti-semitism anti-zionism but i've never criticized israel and then have someone turn around and be like oh so you're a holocaust denier and yeah, that's yeah. literally how it goes with being right. saying something about you're glorifying Nazi collaborators. Like I'm not a Holocaust denier. You're a Holodomor denier. Yeah. And it's um, I don't know. It's it's really it's just kind of absurd because it, it's it's super absurd because they helped do the Holocaust. Yeah, and and these Western <laughs> Ukrainians were not part the part of the Soviet Union that was suffering from the yeah. famine. And it yet they are the spokespeople. Yeah, and then they're the spokespeople for it. And, um, I mean, okay, here's just one thing. The Ukrainian World Congress International Holodomor Committee is chaired by the literal leader of the OUNB, this guy from Australia, um, the leader of the so-called International Council in Support of Ukraine, which is like the coordinating body of OUNB-affiliated organizations around the world. Um himself in the late 1970s led this campaign in the U.S. against the showing of the television movie series Holocaust starring Meryl Streep and James Woods, I think. Uh, Never heard of that. Which, James Woods probably has a slightly different opinion on that by now. But Well, but I think that that like TV movie series was part of this rising awareness of um, the Holocaust and Ukrainian participation in the Holocaust. I think they have an e- they had an episode dedicated to Ukraine and that. And then Ivan Demyanyuk, um, the thought to be a uh, death camp guard at uh, Treblinka, turned out to mm-hmm. be another one at Sobibor. But all this renewed attention on Ukrainian participation in the Holocaust in the 70s and 80s, there was this knee-jerk thing like let's focus on the famine to mm. distract and counteract from it right yeah. right right and it's, i mean um, it's it's just yeah. like it's so cynical that like the word is even yeah I mean, it's, it's another it's like come on it's not a total coincidence that's our word and it's yeah it's it's just the most cynical thing i think i've ever come across that because <laughs> they're 
you know, if there, if any Ukrainian nationalist is listening to this, they'll act like they're so outraged to be, that we didn't have this conversation. And yet, you know, it's it's these, uh, it's literally the Banderites who did this to themselves, like in yeah, using using it all as a basically distraction from and the cudgel, yeah. yeah. And so we got the Banderites in America. And of course, you know, up until the 90s, we have Ukraine, you know, as, as, as part of the basically as part of the USSR. Um, once the Soviet Union ceases to exist and Ukraine has uh, freed itself from the shackles of, of, of their Eurasian ty- tyranny coming from Moscow, the tendrils of, uh, of, of neo-Stalinism. Um, Bandera makes something of a comeback because you know, for listeners can imagine, Stepan Bandera's name was not exactly synonymous with, um, not excuse me, not synonymous. It wasn't exactly shouted from uh, from from the halls of schools and, and playgrounds uh, during during the time when when there was a Ukrainian SSR. But uh, but post nineties or or rather in the nineties and until today the sort of cult around Stepan Bandera has grown and grown and grown and really, I mean, just continues to explode. And so I think it's, we, we, we would be remiss not to talk a little bit about modern Ukrainian politics because the shadow of Bandera and the shadow of essentially all of the 20th century and, and, and late, late uh, 19th century Ukrainian nationalism is really cast over, over modern Ukraine. Yeah, and just kind of like with the Holodomor stuff, I mean, I think the the um, OUNB, which, you know, by the time the Soviet Union collapsed, was almost entirely based in the Ukrainian diaspora, that this diaspora-led network um, really has been at the forefront of um, basically Ukraine's more controversial memory politics. And so that goes hand-in-hand for them is the Holodomor stuff, and then also the glorification um, of Bandera and other fascist Nazi collaborators. And um, and so the, the OUNB today kind of poses as more center-right or more like respectable nationalists today, but um, there are connections to be made between them and the far right, but the memory politics stuff is kind of what unites all these people is, you know, all mm. neo-Nazis and your more quote-unquote respectable nationalists all are fully on board with the whole Bandera cult. And, um, you know, I think a pretty good example of that is, um, you know, the like torchlit marches you get mm. in Ukraine today led by the far right. Whereas during the Cold War, I mean, um, I know for a fact at least the 25th anniversary of Bandera's 1959 assassination by the KGB. So in, 19, in, in 1984, Munich, they had a torchlit march um, in Munich. Like, and yeah. so there's... I mean, Yukashenko was going to give him like a posthumous award for like the national hero of Ukraine. Yeah, and um, um, the at the time, the first lady of Ukraine was... Um, Ukrainian American woman from Chicago, 
who was uh, a mentee of um, Lev Dobriansky, who I mentioned earlier. And so there's like uh, a direct connection between this. The spider network. <laughs> so so that, that's, I mean, I think, I think a lot of, I mean, people who are maybe of a more advanced age, like some of us, might remember from the 2013-2014 uh, Euromaidan protests in Ukraine that at first they were presented to us as, you know, there's another sort of Belarus-style, you know, Eastern Bloc, you know, post-Soviet dictator who's, you know, Russia-controlled, mm. whatever. And then there are these, like, beautiful, brave young people who want uh, the the Ukraine to sort of join the European community. It was because, uh, because you know, you, you were refusing to sign this, like, paper that would, uh, you know, commit Ukraine to further integration with, with Western Europe. Um, and then I started noticing... Uh, a large amount of black and red flags at these protests. And it's funny because some people I actually know were like, oh, they're anarchist flags. They're anarcho-syndicalists. And uh, because... because <laughs> Anarcho-syndicalists for, for the EU. <laughs> yeah, well, it, it's, it became sort of clear that it was not necessarily for the EU that, that some of these people were fighting, which, by the way, the EU, not a fan of that. But uh, it... it, it the 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 banderite flag and and what's sort of now just like i don't know who exactly which exact groups use it anymore in ukraine but the banderite flag is a black and red flag with sort of diagonal cross there uh diagonally black and red um the same as the anarcho syndicalist flag or no it's, or it's horizontal horizontal yes yeah. you're right it's horizontal excuse me so different than the anarcho syndicalist flag but uh it, 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 the, the, the Euromaidan protests really quickly uh, got some what looked like really heavy muscle from these groups and these, these right-wing groups. And, and it, you know, it appeared to somebody from afar, like me, is that these were the groups, like these sort of neo-fascist groups, these, these hard-right, you know, sort of integralist, fascist, whatever you want to call them, they were all different kinds of groups, were like really gaining a lot of power. I mean, they were taking over hotels, they were killing policemen, like they were ready. Like these were actual revolutionary groups. Yeah, um, and that was wild to see. And I think um, people didn't, it's like even Russia didn't make, I don't think, much of a stir of this, but the literal OUNB like, had a pretty significant role in a lot of that. Um, like right sector got a lot of the attention, but right sector was, um, which was kind of formed right at the beginning of the Euromaidan as this coalition of um, far right groups, including some neo-Nazi elements, but the creation of right sector was led by um, this group called the Trident, which was um, in the nineties um, was literally like the OUNB's paramilitary group. And it then went off and did its own thing. Um, so it's like right sector isn't officially tied to the OUNB today, but it is basically more closely resembles the OUNB of the 1930s and forties. Like they're the, um, like the really radical, true Banderite believers today. And um, and then even Svoboda, um, the guy Alexander Siech, who becomes the deputy prime minister of Ukraine after the Euromaidan, and he was at the time talked about like he's one of the chief ideologues of Svoboda. He was um, tied up with the OUNB as recently as 2006. And so it's like, it does seem that in addition to having their own groups, the OUNB has once again done this game of infiltrating others. And um, I think even the 
um, the deputy leader of the OUNB in 2013-14, and I'm forgetting his name, but he was, um, I think he was in charge of the uh, headquarters of the Maidan self-defense, which was the like militia, militia yeah. structure. And um, the head of it was this neo-Nazi guy, um, Parobi, who's gotten a lot of attention. And then someone else who was involved in that was um, Andre Levus, or, or L-E-V-U-S. And um, he's someone who I think could, you know, potentially be the, the new leader of the OUNB in Ukraine. I don't know that, but he's definitely... I, I mean, it's like there's just... There are all these connections to be made, and the the... Euromaidan was like hijacked by the far right, but then the the literal OUNB did have like a a role to play in all of that. I think too, like just I mean, we we probably can and will do a whole episode on Maidan because there's a lot there's a lot to talk about there, um, and we don't need to get into all of it. But I do think like something that you said earlier. I think is worth like bringing back up here is you said they're really good at infiltrating groups. And that's been like one of your biggest takeaways with the Ukrainian nationalists. And like one thing to understand to our listeners who aren't familiar with the kind of like what happened during Maidan um, and also like afterwards is that like, it's not, we're not just talking about like a bunch of like paramilitary groups randomly. Like these people are also very well connected with the Atlantic council and have friends at NATO. And we mentioned our good friend John McCain and other, uh, you know, members of Congress and and uh, people in the UK and the EU, etc. Like, through these quote-unquote respectable front groups, uh, they're essentially front groups that you're kind of, like, outlining. Um, whether it's, you know... I mean, the Atlantic Council has that whole initiative called, like, Ukraine and Europe or whatever, right? And that is, I think that was after Maidan that that was launched. But the point being that, like, it was a continuation of that project of utilizing these kind of right-wing fascist nationalist connections in order to, you know, <laughs> I mean, for U.S. and EU interests in in, you know, making sure the the regime change was continuing to be successful. And the Ukraine in Europe initiative that you mentioned was um it was itself started with a partnership between the Atlantic Council and the Ukrainian World Congress. Um Yes, the Ukrainian World Congress. That's the one I was thinking of. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah. And that's like literally controlled by the OUNB. And so I mean that's just one example, but they do have ties to the Atlantic Council and um yeah, and it's just it's it's I mean it's kind of like the whole point of these front groups is they pose they get to pose as representatives not just of the OUNB but the Ukrainian diaspora and um and to, I guess to a lesser extent today but Ukrainian Americans and Ukrainian Canadians have um exerted a lot of influence and you know they can make the difference in elections um more mm. locally but um, Don Hughes in particular here. Yeah, and it's I mean it's probably something too that you know the Biden campaign is thinking about too is you know because the ukrainian american hmm. community used to be pretty solidly <laughs> republican and now um well his son did a bang up job over there right oh yeah a, that's yeah. what he was doing it's it's called soft diplomacy liz you wouldn't know anything about it 
Man. He's just over there to make friends and connections to further American interests Don't abroad. Don't get me fucking started on that. That this shit pisses me off too because like you know fucking Ukraine great is real, man. Like that shit happened and is real. There's uh, we don't even have time to get into like how the I mean we'll have to we have to do another episode because like you know all of this like kind of like fascist history is so important for then understanding you know the mass amounts of private equity grift that happened because of Euromaidan and NATO and the Atlantic Council getting their tentacles in there and continuing to make sure that you know it's like they think they can softly manage the i mean this is my understanding is and tell me if i'm i don't know incorrect but it seems like now these guys think or the idea is like oh we can just continually to like continue to like soft manage these like kind of fascists in here so long as we can keep you know shoring up our capital investment and we can keep you know we're we'll get them to hire hunter biden like they did back then or you know whoever else in the future and we're going to keep opening up all the agricultural sectors and we're going to you know create this wall against russia whatever and what it seems like if you keep up with what's going on in ukraine like today is that it's unclear if anyone has control over these far right groups. And it's like it's like even calling them far right is like not even appropriate. Like explicitly Nazi, explicitly fascist. Like if I, I'm I'm telling you, man, they're like fuck these are like legit scary dudes. They literally like video and live stream going into to to Romani uh I don't know why I pronounced it like that, just because it's like not not a not a word I'm used to saying. Uh, say Romani? Roma uh, encampments in the woods yeah. and just like tearing encampments apart, beating people. I mean, when I was there, I, I spent a, a two and a half, three weeks there. Uh, yeah, most of it in Odessa, which is not, I mean, that's that's in southern Ukraine, not in western Ukraine. So this stuff is not as popular there. Bandera, they actually polled about Bandera there. He polls worse in, in southern Ukraine, I think, than anywhere else, especially because it has historical Jewish population as showcased in the works of Isaac Babel, very good writer. Um but uh, but I saw like legions of pudgy youth. Uh, what what and that's what did stand out to me was their dumpiness. Uh, marching down the street in black, you know, black t-shirts, black pants. Bla- uh, you know, I, I can't remember what flag. It's some flag I hadn't seen before. And then they also had the the, the regular Ukrainian flag. Um, and you know, in in Odessa too, you know, they they burned the trade union hall with with a lot of uh, what they called pro Russians inside of it and burned a bunch of people alive. Um. It's, it's, it's a, it's a frightening thing, but what, what, what I sort of like the impression I get is because like, I cannot stress enough that like Ukrainian politics outside of these far right parties, none of the like liberal democratic parties seem to have much of what you could call grassroots support. And they certainly do not have private militias. And so like the way I sort of think about it is like, okay, well you had your sort of February revolution in the Maidan protests, but like the problems that are existed in Ukraine before that revolution were not solved. You know, there is still massive amounts of graft and corruption as, as showcased by employee Hunter Biden. Uh, there is, uh, it's like it, like the, the, the general sort of like, um, sentiment of people that I met there was like, Oh yeah, this government's fucked up, you know, sort of just like the last government, but it's like, what are you going to do? But these right wing groups, are able to harness like that 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 power, and so like there is like a, a tremendous amount of far right and neo Nazi involvement in government there. But if things kind of keep continuing, I could see that becoming um, 
let's say less uh not marginalized because you certainly couldn't call it marginalized uh but more at the forefront and possibly like a, a another revolution well that's what they want and i mean that that's what i think is scary because that's gonna i think yeah like i think what you said with like the february revolution and then this would be kind of like their october revolution um and um i think this point the neo-nazis and the far right would be um a more significant role than they were in 2013, 14. Mm-hmm. And um, the thing, it's like the thing that's unique about the OUNB is it's got these connections to the diaspora, which in turn have connections and influence with political systems and society in um, the US and Canada and Australia and so forth. And I guess the thing is, it's like the OUNB really does kind of pose as kind of like the bridge between the establishment and the far right and i guess they kind of feel like that gives them the ability to manage a situation but i think it would be um something i've been coming back to is thinking how i feel like if they tried to have another revolution that would be kind of like their 1941 all over again where when they think they're going to have their banderite revolution or whatever is when the nazis are going to come in and shut it down and then they're going to take over and mm-hmm. I think it's like these, this OUNB, Bandera Lobby, whatever you want to call it, is they're not neo Nazis, but they are neo Nazi collaborators and enablers and sympathizers. And um, one example of that is Ulana Saprun, who was the healthcare minister of Ukraine, Ukrainian American. She's evidently um, friendly with one of the leaders of the neo Nazi groups that was behind the anti Roma um, violence you mentioned. And um, She's also a favorite of the Atlantic Council, and yet mm. she seems to be herself more than likely a member of the OUNB. Mm. Um, she's Not surprising. Yeah. yeah, she was part of the Ukrainian World Congress. Was part well, of- if she's for Medicare for all, like that is like <laughs> to be clear, like that's a Nazi program. Yeah, you know, and well, so like it's if they want to have an October revolution, they better pray for a Biden win because the only way they're getting one is if the U.S. backs backs it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Since- well, y- yeah, Obama had to be in there the first time. And I think someone who concerns me with Biden is Michael Carpenter, who's kind of, who was, I think, for point, the assistant secretary. Listeners, get your notepads out. Get your notepads <laughs> out for this one. Well, he was the, I think, assistant secretary of defense at some point for Russia and Ukraine. And in any case, he was kind of, you know, Biden was like the point person in the White House for Ukraine. And the Michael Carpenter yeah, was no one of shit. his point yeah, people. Yeah, yeah. And Michael Carpenter has gotten wrapped up with um, the Center for U.S.-Ukraine Relations, which I feel like I can say with no fear of being accused of defamation or whatever is just more of us an OUNB front. And I tried, to att- I tried to attend one of their events in March, and, that's, and I got one of the people, it actually walked in when Michael Carpenter was having his panel discussion. And one of the people who I know to allegedly be one of the OUMB leaders in the U.S. Well, two of them, they both got up. One of them off their panel with Michael Carpenter to like escort me out of the room. Well, he got up off the panel with like a Biden advisor to get you out of the room. Yeah, and then we took a photo together. And um, what? <laughs> yeah, and um, they they're the ones who think I'm an FSB agent or whatever. And That's amazing. But I was I wanted to ask Michael Carpenter like, do you realize? who you're dealing with kind of a thing. I think they might, and they're okay with it. 
Yeah, considering he, it was so successful the first time, why would they? Why wouldn't? Why would they stop? I want, or I don't know if I really want to. I kind of giving him a little bit of the benefit of the doubt, but there are people who they work with who I'm sure know um, the truth about all this. Uh, number one being Herman uh, Perchner, who's the founding president of the neoconservative American Foreign Policy Council. Um, yes. He's particularly close with all of them, and. I think he was going to, like, run. He was very close to Newt Gingrich. Um, yes. I mean, yeah, I think they all know. I don't know. I'm like, I think they all know. They were very, very all, they were all very active in 2013, 2014. They had a lot, there were a lot of bipartisan support over there in Ukraine. Yeah. I think it does kind of also raise questions of where the CIA stands on this stuff today, because... Mm. Michael Abed and these others they're working with were supposed to be the respectable ones who had been reformed. Right, right, right. And, and these guys are like garish. These guys now are like in-your-face Nazis. They're not respectable Nazis. It's really hard for them not to say stuff about Jews. Well, except these are the ones, the Diaspora Network. Yeah, in a way, speaking of front groups, it's almost like the OUNB is itself a front group because it poses as moderate. And then, mm. meanwhile... They've got these crazy cousins in Ukraine who are like yeah. hardcore far right and who, by the way, are literally part of the Ukrainian military, like Azov battalion, stuff like that. Like it is, it is, they are on the front lines armed, even after they're supposed to be disarmed, being trained, by the way, by NATO members. I think they were being trained by Canada and England. And I mean, I'm sure America too, but I've just seen footage of Canada and England. Um, you know, like there are NATO advisors on the ground training guys with swastika tattoos who would love to rip you out of your fucking house and kill you. Yeah. And the U.S. support, I think, was barred at some point. But but it's like, that, yeah, that's just like tip of the iceberg, basically. Yeah. Well, well, Moss, we got to wrap up uh, in a sec. I just I, I, I get so excited talking about this stuff that the time got away from me. Um is there is there anything like so I want I want to tell listeners to check out uh, Bandera Lobby that's that's uh, band it's it's fucking phonetic don't make me spell Bandera for you Bandera Lobby B A N D E R A L O B B Y dot S U B S T A C K dot C O M Damn I, I who am I to interrupt the queen Bandera Lobby dot Substack dot com um, you can see Moss's work there. Uh, Moss, do you have any, any parting words for our, uh, our dear listeners here? Um, well, I guess to plug a couple things, um, doing this podcast series, um, this podcast called The Farm, about the World Anti-Communist League. Oh, yeah. We just did our fourth of what'll probably be seven or eight episodes or so, and the last one was like three hours, and we spent a lot of it talking about this guy, Lev Dobriansky, um, we also didn't get too much into Canada um, and just did a podcast with um, Alberta Advantage talking about the Canadian side of things some more, which is basically the, U the what's going on in the U.S., but even worse. Um, and yeah, I don't know. I don't, I don't have any good news or anything. But <laughs> <laughs> Such as it is these days. Thank yeah. you so much. This is so fun. Yeah, no, thank yeah. you. Um, that farm podcast, of course, by friend of the pod, Recluse, who appeared on, I believe, our first Spider Network yes, show. Yes. Uh, cannot recommend enough. I've listened to a couple of the, the ones with, with Moss. Very good, very good podcast overall, if you're interested in the parapolitical. Um, Moss, thank you a ton, and, uh, and we'll see you next time. Thanks so much.
have these tea tree oil fucking these tea tree Are you therapy quitting? toothpicks. Quitting what? Toothpicks? Smoking. Oh no 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 no. Oh, that's usually my pop them. No 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 baby. I just smoke he so much. Wheezes no, in in response to that. <laughs> baby baby no no no. I've actually I've I've gone back. You see these fucking things I got? Look at these things. You're not smoking those. Come on. I'm smoking the research cigarette. A, a, a listener you, you did sent not. me rat cigarettes that yeah, are meant you- for <laughs> rats. And uh, they're called research cigarettes, tobacco health research. Uh, and uh, let me tell you, they're not exactly the best tasting flavor, but they do have a lot of tar. Oh and that's God. what I look for in a ciggy. Um, I don't that want was you fun. to smoke those. Uh, I had, well, I had a, a change in the subject. I thought that interview was fun. It was. I love, I love talking Yuki. about Ukraine. Mm-hmm. And at some point, we're going to have to talk about Poland, which gives me great... Uh, that does not make me feel good. We should talk about Poland right now, Liz. <laughs> I don't want to. Um, I, I, uh, I have something to tell you. Mm. I've purchased a majority share in the country of Poland. <laughs> that and actually might be possible. I'm handing it over to you. You oh. are now technically the Duchess of Poland. <laughs> I don't know if I want that. You know, when, we, when you mentioned integralism... <laughs> When you mentioned integralism in the um, in the whatever in the interview, uh, I just immediately I was like, yeah, that's Poland. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Just getting really mad about the eight immigrants in Poland. Uh, not a good situation. There, I'm my like, friends. guys, how can you guys be anti-immigrant? People are anti-immigrant against you everywhere else. Like, come on. Yeah. Um, also, no, there's none here. But uh, but yeah, I know it's it's there's not that many there. Uh, yeah, I, 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 we'll, we'll get to Poland someday. We should go there and investigate. We should solve Poland. I'm going to shut down this conversation before either of us says something that gets us in trouble. <laughs> I guess that's true. Yeah. People have tried to solve Poland. And so anyways, uh, that was a fun episode. Um, you are never talking about Eastern Europe again because Liz, uh, gave me that look right there. Cause I was about to say something about Poland. Um, oh and now God. we will be dealing solely with, uh, with countries in, uh, Micronesia. <laughs> yes. Or just so, central Europe. We're only talking about France. <laughs> check. All right. Look, look everyone's right. favorite country. Czechia. That's <laughs> yeah. a bunch of bullshit that they did that. I want to register. I, I think I speak for all of us here. You can't just change it to Czechia. Yeah, it's What was terrible. wrong with the Czech Republic? Czechia, awful. Don't awful take the name. the out of the name because then it fucks me up. Yeah, because now we're, we're supposed to say, oh, it's not the Ukraine. It's not the Czech Republic. No. Yeah, I'm, I'm still, well, I've, I found a balance. I'm just calling it the Czechia from now on. So <laughs> all good, which makes it sound like a zone in like a futuristic city. The Chaz. Chaz uh, and Czechia, yeah. very similar. Well, Chaz actually was based off of the 1921 Czech Republic Constitution, <laughs> the first Czech Republic. What's that guy? Benes? Benes yeah, or whatever? Yeah, yeah. yeah, he actually was technically, uh, like, they had his picture everywhere in Chaz. It was a we heavily just, Czech influence um, zone. When we, you know, people that were angry at Chaz should have just started calling them nationalists. <laughs> Chaz nationalists. <laughs> well, I will say, like, the police in Seattle is, like, notoriously has, like, a pro-Slovak bias. And so, like, bias? I'm not bias. Yeah, they're always I, making me mispronounce the diaspora. Listen, let's just let's shut it down. 
Yeah, I gotta go. I'm so hot. Uh, I'm still really warm. All right, my name is The Brace. I'm Liz. Joined by producer Young Chomsky. And we will see you next time. Bye-bye. 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 B